Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55, that was read earlier, the Magnificat. And I have a question for you. What is the best baby gender reveal party you've ever seen? You know what a baby gender reveal party is? I know because I watched it on YouTube. I didn't know. It's, it's a time when, when uh, prospective parents invite their family and friends and to come and watch as, as they some way share, share with everybody the gender of the baby that's about to be born to them. And I watched on YouTube where one young prospective father had the creative idea of taking pink and blue chalk and putting it under Timorite, which is an explosive for target practice. And he took his high-powered rifle from 100 yards back, and he shot that Timorite, and it exploded in the appropriate color, pink or blue. And it was blue. That was a, a, a gender reveal party. And I've heard of others that have gone terribly wrong, like starting forest fires and stuff like that. But uh, the greatest gender reveal in all of history makes all these others pale in significance. And that is when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said to her, you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He'll be great and called, be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Immediately after Mary heard that announcement, how shall this be since I'm a virgin? The angel said, well, you're relative Elizabeth is now pregnant with a little boy. And Elizabeth was quite old. This was a miracle. And Elizabeth immediately got up and she went 100 miles south to where Elizabeth lived to meet her relative and indeed saw that Elizabeth was showing at six months pregnant. What a gender reveal party that must have been because John the Baptist in, Mary's, in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy filled with the Holy Spirit when he heard Mary's voice. And then that party gets better. Anticipating carrying the Son of the Most High in her womb, and for the next nine months, Mary worships God by singing this beautiful song of awe of the Creator of the universe who chose her to deliver the long-awaited Messiah to Israel. And as was read Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy to the ones fearing him from generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. And he's brought down rulers from their thrones. And he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent away the rich empty. And he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers." What a profound song, so deep with truth. And as I see Mary sing the song, I see it fall into three verses. If you look at hymn book, it's got verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. Three verses in this song of these magnificent blessings that this baby 
and, and her womb, Jesus will accomplish. These three verses all of her song point to Jesus' gracious blessing, first of all, to herself, then to all those who revere God, and then to the nation of Israel. And so I see three responses that we can make this Christmas as we read this song and apply it to our lives. The first response is, call Mary blessed because Jesus saved her. That's what verses 46 to 49 says. She said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The word magnify means to make great, like we're looking through a magnifying glass. It means to make big. Did Mary make herself big? No. She makes the Lord big, like putting a magnifying glass and saying, look at this. How great is our God, how big He is. See, our worship rises and falls on our concept of God. Is your God too small? Do you limit God by your own prejudices or ignorance? A.W. Tozer put it this way, that the most important thing about us is our concept of God. How do you see God? As somebody up there likes me or a celestial Santa Claus who knows when you're naughty and nice and he's keeping a list, you know, and he's going to reward you or punish you one way or the other? Is that what he's like, a grandfather in the sky? Some kind of wrathful, angry, you know, demigod in the myths that throws down thunderbolts? Well, then how can you worship a God like that? Perhaps some of you are mad at God because he's not answered your prayers like you thought he should have. I recall a dear friend, Maggie, Peggy, who died of cystic fibrosis in her late 30s. She should have died when she was 12 with cystic fibrosis. Your lungs fill up terribly. It's a horrible disease. And as we met her, she would not accept Jesus as her Savior because she was angry at God for the longest time. As a little girl, she prayed that her friend, who was also eight or nine, would not die. And she believed God would answer prayer. And then the little girl died. And Peggy became angry at God for all those years and would not trust God because you don't answer my prayers. I'm angry at you. Until one day, the Lord showed her his love and grace and how he does answer prayer and that he was trustworthy. And she placed her faith in him, even though she could have died any days before that. Living to be 30 with cystic is really an amazing thing. And I can recall Peggy with her lungs filling up with all kinds of phlegm. With every ounce of energy she had, says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. When you realize how big God is, you rejoice in Him. But so many people limit God. They think by being angry with Him, you're going to teach Him a lesson or something like that. No, what happens then is that you miss heaven by 18 inches. Let me ask you something. Would you just take a finger and point to yourself? Okay, I don't see anybody pointing to their heads. They're pointing to your hearts. And a lot of people miss God because they have God in their heads and not in their hearts. It's just a mental thought, just a concept that probably is wrong or skewed by past scars or histories or hurts. But when you ask Jesus into your heart, you ask him into your life, who you really are. See, Mary believed in Jesus. 
for nothing is impossible with God. He said, I am the Lord. Is anything too hard for me? And what did Mary rejoice in? Look at the verse. In God, my Savior. Mary had a Savior? That's what the Bible says here. My Savior, his name is Yahushua, Joshua. As we saw earlier, that that's the combination of Yahweh and Shua. Yahweh saves. And Jesus, living in her womb, I think she looks and says, Yahweh, Yahushua, my Savior, I'm bearing him in her womb, Emmanuel, because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right there, starting right there in her womb, full of grace and truth. And he came to save Mary from the penalty of her sins. Now, I know many people believe that Mary was sinless, but that's not what the Bible says. She acknowledged here her need for a Savior. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is indeed a blessed woman, and we want to call her blessed because Jesus saved her, highly favored that she is. But you see, Jesus is the only person who ever lived who never sinned. The Bible says that, right? And first, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he had no sin. In 1 John 3.5, he knew no sin. But the Bible says nowhere that Mary had no sin, right? And the only source for authority for faith and practice for us is what the Bible says. Nobody else. Mary, like all born human beings, was a sinner. Inherited the sin nature from Adam like we all do. And she needed a Savior. And she confessed that her salvation was her faith in her son, the Savior, whom she watched down the cross for her sins. That's what Christmas meant for Mary. I am so blessed that I get to suckle this little boy and, and watch him grow up knowing someday I'm going to be pierced with sorrow because he's going to be tortured and crucified in my place for the guilt of my sin. I love him twice over as my son but as my Savior. She said, for he has been mindful of me. Now the word mindful has become popular now, right? It's actually, he thinks of me, of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, and we will and do, Mary. I look forward to meeting you someday. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. God saw her humble estate. Literally, God has regarded the favor, or the, has regarded the humiliation of her slave. The word slave actually means someone who is uh, paid like a, someone, a galley slave who rows the boats and down to the very bottom, a slave. And she was bearing or would have, could have bared the disgrace of being pregnant outside of wedlock. So here's Mary, an unmarried, pregnant teenager in a very small village, Nazareth, and she could have been stoned for adultery and found out when she goes back to Nazareth, what's going to happen to her? Like a slave, she had no rights, but was totally dependent on her master to take care of her when she came back home. She would be showing by then, and she entrusted herself to the Lord to go before her and protect her from gossip and shunning and stoning, perhaps. And so Mary sang this song there in Elizabeth's house, not knowing that the angel Gabriel would someday appear before 
her fiancé, Joseph, and tell him why and how he needs to take care of Mary and that baby and even what to name that boy. More than she could have known, the Mighty One has done great things for her. He has gone before her. He's behind her. He takes care of her. Bless you, Mary, for being a wonderful, obedient slave so we can know your Son, our Savior. Holy is His name. The word holy comes from the Hebrew word, means to cut and set apart for a special purpose. And to be holy is to be cut, separated for a sacred purpose. And Jesus was cut apart to be sacred for a holy purpose, that is to save us. And when we place our faith in Jesus, we become holy because He saved us for a sacred purpose in our lives, right? Yes, indeed. Can't wait to see what that's going to be like when we all get to heaven and look back and see that. The word holy, God is holy, 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 His attributes. It's the only attribute of God that's mentioned three times. And in the Hebrew language, the way you make something very strong is not say very, very, you say it, you repeat the word several times. Holy, holy, holy. Nowhere in the Bible to say God is love, love, love. But God is holy. He is other. He is the creator. I'm the creation. He's apart from me. And, and, I, and I bow in, in reverence to the creator who made me. He's holy. Holy is his name. That's Jesus, holy son of God. So Mary so blessed, and this first verse calls us to celebrate what this person was willing to do to be a part of our salvation. And second uh, response to Mary's song is to receive God's mercy and humble worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 50 to 53. His mercy to the ones fearing Him from generation to generation now the NIV says his mercy extends, but the word extend is not in the original language. It means his mercy to all those who fear him. Then the word fear may have a connotation of cringing back and being, you know, like you're going to be whipped or something. That's not what it means. This word fear has a profound reverence and respect for God. In awe, bordering on fear. For example, like when Isaiah saw the Lord, holy, 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 and all his holiness, the prophet cried out, Woe is me! I'm ruined. Literally, I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm, I'm going to die in the presence of holy God. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Who did Isaiah see? The Bible tells us in John 12, 42, he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him, Holy Holy, his name is holy, and I can only respond in fear and holy reverence. Like when Simon Peter, there when we talked about this in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus says, take out your boats to the deeper water, cast out the nets, and they filled up two boatloads of fish. And Peter the fisherman saw that it was because Jesus said, cast your nets deeper. And so Peter fell to his knees on purpose in the midst of all those slimy fish. And he said to Jesus, get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. That's worship. To just saunter into his presence like he's another person. No, he's the holy God who gives us access to the throne of grace. It's just incredible. These two men feared the Lord and worshiped Jesus. 
And so Mary testified in her song that this fear opens our heart to receive his mercy. Mercy to the ones fearing him from generation to generation. 2,000 years ago, how many generations has that been? His mercy is still available today. Our response is still most required this very moment to worship him. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Look what the sovereign Lord has done. God is in charge of the nations. Daniel says he puts kings in power and takes them down. And so Mary sings this song. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He knew Nebuchadnezzar was a proud person. And he warned him, if you keep like this, keep this up, you're going to be eating grass for seven years like an animal. And when he stood out on the mountain, the, this is my holy city that I've built. Next minute, he was cast aside for seven years. God knows our inmost thoughts if they're proud and he will cast us down. But here's the good news. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. But he sent the rich away empty. I don't need him. I've got all I need. Oh, you're missing the best fair, the best banquet. You see, the Bible says in, in Psalm 33, 18, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Lord, I need you every hour. I need you. I can't do this. I can only do what you strengthen me to do. Oh, I need you as the deer pants for the water. So my soul thirsts for you, O living God. When can I go and meet the Lord? Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise my God and Savior. Mercy is God withholding the punishment we deserve, right? He's not Santa Claus. That grace is God blessing us with what we could never deserve. On the cross, this tremendous exchange I gave God and Jesus the guilt of all my sin, and he saved me, and then in return, he gave me all of his grace and kindness that I could never deserve. That's grace. The Bible tells us in James 4, 6, but he gives us more grace and more grace. Grace upon grace. As it says in John 1, I, went to the, I love to go to the beach and look at the waves because it reminds me of grace upon grace. And I'll stand there on the shore. And watch those mighty breakers roll in. All the time I'm there, and all the time I'm not there, before I was born and long after I die, wave upon wave upon wave, grace upon grace upon grace. <laughs> he gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. The proud, the proud is, I'm independent man. I'm a self-made man. I'm here because, you know, I, I, I set my course and, and I studied hard and I've worked hard all my life and I've earned this and that and I've raised a family and I don't need a rubber crutch like God. God opposes you. 
To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable in Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, and one was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like those other men, those robbers and those evildoers and those adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. I tithe my gross even. But the tax collector stood at a distance he would not even, this is Jesus telling the story, by the way. He would not even look up to heaven, this man, this tax collector, but he beat his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Are you humble? Are you hungry? Are you needy? He knows our inmost thoughts. And then Jesus says this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's talk about humble and humility. Humility is not thinking too highly of yourself or thinking too lowly of yourself. It's thinking the Goldilocks just right. It's thinking about you see yourself as you really are, and you see God as he really is. Some people live despondent and despair, thinking, I'm not worthy. That's not humility. That's self-pity. That's depression, sometimes caused by chemical imbalance in your brain, sometimes caused by your looking at your situations. But humility is looking at yourself. I am a child of God, saved by grace, bound for heaven, blessed of God, because God is a God of mercy and kindness. Humility is nothing but the truth about who you really are and the truth about who God really is. On the other side, pride is nothing but lying about who you are, pretending who you're not, and lying about who God is. You're not telling yourself the truth about yourself or about God. Pastor John MacArthur said, really, the basis of all sin is pride because all sin is rebellion against God, and rebellion against God amounts to my will against His will, and that's a proud act, don't you think? And a proud person is one who's angry at God and still is and says, no! And he's able to humble you, and he will. Peggy, in her pride, turned in humility, close to death, and was born again. She humbled herself with the right of prayer appraisal of herself and who God is. And that's what Christmas really is all about. Who are you really, God? And who am I really in your presence? And I bow in humble worship. Ask God, how do I receive mercy? And the Bible answers us in James 4, 7 through 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Submit. Proud person submitting. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He knows your inmost thoughts. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Confess your sins, for God is faithful and just and will forgive you all your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, the, the Bible promises, based on the blood of Christ. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up, and that's a promise. You can bank on it.
As I said, there's three verses in this Song of Mary that praise God for blessings, being pregnant, first of all, with Jesus, her first stanza, and then secondly, praising God for His mercy to the humble for their worship. And the third uh, verse of this song climaxes the song, a great crescendo of astonished wonderment and awe, a realization that after thousands of years of waiting, Messiah is coming to earth to help the nation of Israel finally, and he's in my womb. And that's what she sings. He has helped me, opened me, as word. It's kind of hope in there. His servant Israel. We're talking about the Jewish physical descendants of Abraham. Not the church. The church and Israel are not the same. He's talking about the nation of Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants, his seed forever, even as he said to our fathers. And so who's Mary talking about? Everybody in the Old Testament, right? They've been waiting all these millennia. And now God is on the move. He's here. And Mary, in her profound insight on what the angel said to her, knew that Jesus' birth is the answer to Israel's hope for the Messiah. And Zechariah, who was struck dumb because he didn't believe Gabriel, when he was finally able to talk, when they named their, their boy John, he praised the God of Abraham in, verse, in chapter 1, verses 72, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. There is a contract. There is a promise. An oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And that's in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. When God began the nation of Israel, he promised Abraham a land that I will show you. I will give you a seed and I will cause you to be a blessing. Land, seed, blessing. Land, a nation, and a blessing. And it goes deeper than that, but that's what the Jews understood, and that's truly what's going to happen. And what is our response then to Mary's third verse of her song, verses 54 to 55? Let us celebrate Jesus' birth because He is keeping His promise to Abraham. Jesus is the seed that God promised Abraham. In Genesis 12, 7. And you read Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 16. Paul explains it to us. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to his account as righteousness. Before he was even circumcised, he was saved. For the just shall live by faith. It's quoted, you know, in Romans and several other places. And here in Genesis 15, 6, he believed God. He went out and counted the stars and so shall your descendants be. And God says, you're now right with me. And then Paul goes on in Galatians, understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. And he quotes Genesis 12:3: all the nations will be blessed through you. All the ethnic groups, all the peoples, and that part of the Abrahamic covenant is for us Gentiles and all our Gentile. That's the blessing. Of that. Did you notice that the gospel was announced in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3? The blessing? 
Paul goes on, he's explaining this to Peter because Peter and other people there in Galatia were thinking that you had to be circumcised to be saved, by the way. And so Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles because they weren't really true Christians because this is just for the Jews and Paul's making this point. It's for for all the nations. And in verse 16, it says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many, and I know seed is a collective noun in English, meaning many people, but and to your seed, capital meaning one person who is the Christ. And so I looked up those references of that promise, and to your seed, and it always ends this way, and to your seed, I will give this land. From Euphrates to the Mediterranean to north to all the way down to Egypt, I'm going to give you this land, physical piece of property for the nation of Israel. So 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, he was with his apostles and and disciples and talked with them. And just before he went into heaven, uh, here's what his disciples asked him. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you now going to kick out the Romans and we're going to have our own land? Well, he said, not this time. What you're supposed to be doing is being my witness and making disciples. And, And someday when I come back, I will do that. Look how Yahweh is fulfilling His promise to Israel. Jesus came over 2,000 years ago to keep the Lord's promise to Israel. And just as literally as He came on Christmas Day, He's literally coming back again to this planet. That's our Advent that we celebrate. Are you ready to see Him? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Today would be a good day for the rapture, don't you think? I want to take more people with me, though. Don't you? Family and friends. I commend to you Jesus the Christ of Christmas for your complete trust in Him as your Savior. Online, you're watching, just listen to me. I'm based on what Mary sang and her profound insights on this baby in her womb and what she's saying about her Savior and and humility and, and Jesus coming back I commend Jesus the Christ as your Savior, that you place your faith in Him. A woman complained to her pastor, Lord, I I don't know what it means to trust. And he responded, well, tell me, did you ever learn to float? Well, I have tried to. And how'd that go for you? That's the point. It's exactly the reason you didn't succeed. If you want to float, you must let the water bear you up. Let the water do its part. This is what the Bible says. It's true. I place my faith in you. Jesus wants you to appropriate him. There's a huge difference just about knowing about Jesus and appropriating him. Not just 18 inches. A tourist stands and looks at a beautiful house and says, wow, that's a great house. The man standing next to him says, yeah, I know. I own it. It's my house. Isn't that a difference? And that's what it's true with Jesus has saved me. He's just not the Savior who's come on Christmas. He saved me. And that makes all the difference in your life, whether your life is just going to be a normal life or all the abundant life that Jesus promised. Jesus Christ is not satisfied, nor will you ever be, 
and just being normal with your normal life. You'll never be satisfied until you place your complete trust in Him to save you right now. So I'm asking, time out. This is the time for you to do your part. I'd like all of us to bow our heads right now, please. And those of you who know Christ as Savior, I want you to be praying for the Lord to draw people to Jesus as Lydia's heart was opened. No one comes to the Father unless He draws them. But those of you who are not sure of where your eternal destiny is going to be with Jesus, would you pray from the depths of your soul, Jesus, I place my faith in you as my Savior. Just cry out right now. Thank you. Now, when you do that, you will know the joy of Christmas that inspired Mary to sing her song. And this Christmas, you'll be able to sing along with her, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in the Lord, my Savior. Now, I'm not through with the message today. Because it's Christmas, I have one more thing I, I really want to talk to you about. And that's about your Christmas gift to Jesus. What are you going to give Jesus for his birthday gift today? Imagine having a birthday party, and you invite all your family and friends to come, and say you're 10 years old, and so all your family and friends, grandparents, aunts and uncles come, and they come with these beautifully wrapped presents, and they come and they put them on the side of the, of the deal, and wow, look at all these presents, and then they have a birthday cake, and they, and they have a fun time eating a meal first, hors d'oeuvres, and, and then they light the birthday cake, and, and, and you blow out the candles, and then they pass the presents around, and they pass them to each other. And, and, the, and, this, and you, as a 10-year-old, have no present. But everybody's opening their presents and each other gave to everybody else, having a wonderful time. And then it's over. They're putting all the old Christmas wrappings in a black plastic bag and carrying it out and cleaning up the kitchen and sweeping up and saying their goodbyes. And, and then they leave. And there you are, standing in the house alone with no present. If that happened to you, how would you feel? Invisible, unappreciated. Oh, Jesus would know. I'm glad you guys celebrate my birthday and blessings on you for that. But it's my birthday. And he doesn't ask us for a present. But as I thought about that over the years, I said, you know, I need to do something to help my family, at least my family, understand that at Christmas is a time to give a gift to Jesus. So years ago, before COVID, before I retired, I decided that I would do this. At the end of the Christmas celebration, after all the food and the presents and everything else, I had that one card on top of the tree left, and it says to Jesus. And I would take the card, and I'm sharing, I'm not bragging, just saying this is what God led me to do, and I'm trying to lead by example. I took that card from the tree. They're all gathered around, and I think, so we have a card, a birthday card for Jesus. Instead of just singing, reading the Christmas story and singing happy birthday, I want to show you what's in that card. And so, so I open up the envelope, and there's eight $100 bills that I had saved, fresh, 
And I have my grandkids there, and I want them to see this. And so I get on my knees, and I lay out $100 bills all in a row. And I said, this is our birthday gift to Jesus. Would you think about doing that for him every year? Let's sing happy birthday to Jesus. And we did. I said, now what I'm going to do, I'm going to put all this money back in the envelope and give it to Jesus, his body, the local church that we are a part of. And that's what I did. So I'm going to ask you to think about this. Maybe you do this all the time already. Maybe it's not a novel idea. But what about you this coming Christmas? I'm talking about giving over and above what you tithe. You do tithe. Well, we'll talk about that next week. For Judy and I, we've been tithing since we were 16, our first paychecks, and have been, and we got married when we ate seminary state called weenies. And so we were poor, but we tithe the gross of our income, not bragging like this guy that Jesus talks about. But that's, we just believe, you know, I shovel out, he shovels in, God's got a bigger shovel. And we've never been wanting but now that we've tithed all year and we've given more, we want to give more than that. And we do. We don't want to be limited by 10%. Why? So every year we try to increase our giving so it's more and more and more. But for Christmas, we want to give a special gift to Jesus to show that we love you. And we want your name to be honored and great and magnified by us. So think about that. And next Sunday when you come, or when you watch online, you can do it on your church app as well and website. Would you think about giving Jesus a Christmas gift to this church? That this church might magnify the Lord and rejoice in Him and help others to do that? Honor Jesus for His birthday like Mary did when she sang her song. Oh, what a song, Mary. And what a song we can sing as we worship Him.